turn with me to Revelation 14. We content, as we continue to study this scripture which God has given us. I hope that you have caught on that we live in a world of deceit, a virtual fantasy land of illusion and unreality. And all around us is falsehood. And therefore, it's necessary for us to come to the Scriptures to be reminded of reality again and again. Now, suppose that I were to offer to my three-year-old daughter, Allison, a candy bar and a hundred-dollar bill. She could choose whichever one she wanted. Which do you think she would take? The candy bar, of course. Why? Because she's immature. She's uh, short-sighted. She doesn't understand the true value of things. Which would you choose? Well, smugly, you all say the $100 bill. But I wouldn't answer so quickly. Because all the time, you and I are given the same kind of choice. And we choose the candy bars. The world offers us its candy bars of temporal pleasure. It distorts our mind so that values come out all topsy-turvy. And we choose the trivial that gives an immediate pleasure, but nothing lasting. And we pass up that which is more substantial. What we have here in the section today are a series of reminders of reality. We have the message of three angels, a voice from heaven, and then two harvests that come at the end of the age. And the theme that runs throughout all of them is, is consistent. The point is that there is a judgment day coming. And God wants all of us to live in light of that judgment day. He wants that to color the perspective that we have of all of life. So we can see things uh, according to truth, according to reality, and not just grab all the candy bars of the world. The first angel speaks in verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. Here we have the angel giving to all people on earth a last chance. He proclaims to them an eternal gospel. But I find it interesting that he doesn't couch the gospel in terms that are more common to us. He doesn't say believe. He doesn't say accept Jesus Christ into your heart. He says fear God. Give Him glory. Worship Him. Certainly, faith is an adequate description of our response to, to Christ. It's that which is used most frequently in the Acts and the Epistles. And yet, faith can be misunderstood. We can understand believing in Christ like accepting a ticket to heaven. Just as one might accept a, a gifted ticket to a, a, on an airplane and then stick it in his pocket, wait until it was needed for his, his journey. Some people try to accept Christ in that way, guarantee themselves of entry into heaven, 
stick the ticket in their pocket and go on living their lives just as they have. The angel wants us to know that that's not the kind of faith response that is called for. God wants a whole person response from us. And so he says, fear God. Now, to fear God doesn't mean that we cower in fear and always afraid of what might happen. To fear God means that we respect Him. We recognize Him for who He is, the mighty, the awesome God. And we submit ourselves to Him, to His way of salvation. The opposite of fear, fearing God, is not confidence, as we might expect. Because confidence in God only comes through fear. The opposite of fearing God is disrespect of God. The angel says the same thing in different terms when he says, give glory to God. Now, glory is that which makes a person valuable. To give God glory means that we acknowledge His greatness. We acknowledge who He is, the ultimate power, the ultimate wisdom, the ultimate righteousness and goodness in the entire universe. The angel says to worship Him. Now, to worship Him, we don't just come to church and say hallelujah a few times, and that's the worship of God. To worship God means to attribute worth to Him. The same thing as giving Him glory. To, to ascribe to Him the worth, the value, as the greatest being in the entire universe, as the one who is worthy of all trust and obedience. You see, it's impossible for us to give God glory and at the same time, live as if we're in control of our lives and our plans are better than God. It's impossible to say, God, you are the ultimate person. You are the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving creator. And then to say, by our actions, if not by our words, my plans for my life are better than God's. It's not fearing God or worshiping Him to try to, to wrest control for ourselves. Paul says in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap. We mock God by thinking that we can get away with it when we say by, by our lives, I'm going to marry a, a non-Christian person because I'm tired of waiting. Or I'm going to harbor resentment. I don't care what God says. I'm mad at that person. Or I'm going to divorce because I'm unhappy in my marriage. I don't care what God says about faithfulness to commitments. Or I'm going to indulge myself in my own selfish desires because that's what I want to do. To do that kind of thing and think I can get away with it, I can escape negative consequences, is to mock God, the opposite of fearing Him or giving Him glory. And Paul also says we're deceiving ourselves when we do it because God says whatever we sow we're going to reap. We cannot sow one kind of seed, the seed of the flesh, and reap the harvest of the Spirit. So when we acknowledge God in this way, as a person accepts the gospel, he submits himself to God and says, God, you're the Lord. You're the one who is worthy to obey and to trust. And I accept your salvation, the salvation that begins now as you start to transform my life. And this is the message that the angel gives as he preaches from mid-heaven to all creatures on the earth. The second angel speaks in verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, 
She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now, the term Babylon is not uh, uh, identified here. It's not defined. The city of Babylon had fallen some 500 uh, years before uh, this book was written. He's not speaking of the literal city of Babylon. John elaborates in chapters 17 and 18, which we'll get to in, in a few weeks. Babylon is a, is a symbol, a picture, really of many things. In chapter 18, he focuses particularly the symbol of glamour, of commercial prosperity and wealth. It symbolizes more than anything, I think, that the city of man, humanity, organized and opposed to God, living in self-sufficient rebellion. I read, uh, well, we could, could picture Babylon today as Hollywood. I would be an adequate personification of Babylon. Notice that Babylon is called the Great. There's a recognition that she is great in her promises, in her glamour, in her power. I read recently of a beautiful young woman who uh, appeared in a pornographic magazine. The uh, journalist who interviewed her and wrote this uh, stories in Sunday Magazine a few weeks ago said that uh, she came. She was a good person, came from a very respectable family, and asked her why she did it and what she thought of millions of men looking at her picture and thinking what they thought. She said that that was horrible for her to think of, and she repressed those thoughts. Well, why did you do it, he said. And she responded, well, I wanted to get into the pictures. And indeed, through this, I've been offered jobs in two movies. In other words, she prostituted herself to gain the glamour, the money, the power, and a new Porsche that Hollywood have had to offer. We're told here that Babylon is, she's described as the one who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. She offers great reward to those who will prostitute themselves as this woman has. Or we can think of New York City as a personification of Babylon with all of its power, with its culture, with Wall Street and the, the uh, uh, corporate power that is there, with Madison Avenue and New York City, the great, beckons people and says, if you will just prostitute yourself, if you'll sacrifice your family, if you'll sacrifice other people, step on a few toes, you can get to the top. We could also see Boise, Idaho, as Babylon the Great. Most of us are not suckered into the enticements of a Hollywood or a New York City. And yet, right here in Boise, we see the same kinds of things from different angles. We see the humanistic philosophy that pervades and is growing and spreading. We are told directly and subliminally by our culture here in Boise that your self-actualization your own personal fulfillment is the highest good. This should be your highest goal. If you have to sacrifice morality or faithfulness or responsibility or duty to other people, do it for the sake of yourself. You owe it to yourself to be satisfied. You owe it to yourself to get to the top, to satisfy all your heart's desires and get what you want. Such things as duty and service and faithfulness or are shunned and despised. 
Or we're told that, that materialism is the secret. If we can just acquire more things. The secret of success is having a, an RV and a four-wheel drive and a couple of lab retrievers. Or we're told that consumerism is the key. It's not what you have, but what you spend. How many, how many uh, eating establishments you can go to. Uh, how many vacations you can take. How many trips to the mountains. What you consume is the important, is the important thing. All these various avenues are, are held out to us. Entertainmentism. We're told that, that the secret to life is in eating out enough that you get fat, joining a health club so that you can get skinny, uh, going to a mo- new movie every week, getting a hot tub and a, and cable TV. And that's the secret to life. Boise the Great holds out its enticements to us and tells us if we'll just prostitute ourselves. Now, we might not think that we're doing that because many of these things in themselves are not bad. And yet, as we prostitute ourselves by starting to worship man, mankind and what man can offer and let it replace God, then we are following uh, the path of Babylon the Great. But we're reminded here Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. We're given a preview that this great city of man, which looks good, which is powerful in all of its enticements, is doomed to destruction. Now picture yourself watching videotapes of the World Series. You have not seen, you have not read about what happened, and you are watching with rapt attention as the games are played. Sitting next to you is is Satan himself. Disguised, of course, as an angel of light, as a kindly friend who just wants to bet a little bit on the game. He, of course, knows the outcome and is trying to get you to bet on the losing team. But God in his love sends an angel who brings you the daily papers and tells you the outcome of the very games you're watching. That's exactly what we have here. Satan is, is luring us and telling us to bet on the losing team. Babylon the Great will fulfill you. And God says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. No, the world's ways are not going to lead to your fulfillment. They're great in their promises. They're great in the glamour, in the power that they have right now. But they're lacking in the power to, to follow through and provide the goods. The third angel brings his message in verses 9 to 12. Another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints, who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Remember, he's writing to people who are living in the time of the great tribulation. The beast is in power. As we've already seen, those who do not receive the mark of the beast are forbidden 
from commercial practices, from buying or selling, acquiring the food and the clothing, etc. that they need. And therefore, there's great pressure. And people are tempted to think, why don't we just be practical about these things? Just worship the beast, it's not going to hurt you. And right becomes judged by what is convenient, what is pragmatic. It's judged by what everybody else does, because after all, all my friends are doing it, why shouldn't I? But we're reminded that our choice is not between worship the beast and live or worship Christ and die. Our full-blown choice is worship the beast and live now, but die forever. Or worship Christ and die now, but live forever. We're reminded again of the outcome of going the way of the world, taking the easy way out and compromising by worshiping the beast. All those who do will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. They have already drinking of the uh, wine of the passion of the, of the immorality of Babylon the Great. And now in recompense are going to drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Yes, God is an angry God. He's angry at sin. He is patient. He has waited and waited and waited and given men a chance to repent. And yet we are warned that judgment will finally come someday. The judgment will be real. It will be full. The wine is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. The common practice then to mix, uh, serve a mixture of water and wine. But here the wine of the cup of God's anger is given in full strength with no touch of mercy or grace to offset its effects. The outcome of those who worship the beast is described as torment. It will be conscious pain. It's described as torment with, uh, being tormented with fire and brimstone. Now it's possible that there is a uh, a literal hellfire, I would imagine instead that these are symbols of the pain, of the suffering that will come to the person who has held God off and rebelled and rejected Him and said, no, I don't want you. In the New Testament, Jesus gives what appear to me to be opposite and contradictory kinds of pictures. He says that it describes hell as a place where the fire will never be quenched on the one hand, and then the worm will never die on the other. Well, if you have fire, you don't have worms. But they're both pictures of destruction and corruption, torment. And we're told that it's going to go on forever and ever. Look in verse 11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Now, the thought of judgment, the thought of eternal judgment, is a stumbling block to modern man, and it's often an embarrassment to modern Christians. And yet the scriptures teach it very forcefully, very clearly. Many have tried to evade the idea by picturing God as a kindly old grandfather who spoils his children, and man as a relatively insignificant child who can do nothing worthy of any kind of eternal punishment. Or they try to alter the teaching, make it palatable by teaching a universalism teaching that all men universally, ultimately will be saved, though some might go through a temporary hell. Or others teach annihilationism, the teaching that the wicked will be annihilated, they'll be exterminated, but not punished. 
forever and ever. We don't like the idea, and yet Scripture teaches it. Let me read to you uh, an apt comment from Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian of the last century. He says this, We are incompetent judges of the penalty which sin deserves. We have no adequate apprehension of its inherent guilt, of the dignity of the person against whom it is committed, or of the extent of the evil which it is suited to produce. The proper end of punishment is retribution and prevention. What is necessary for that end only God knows, and therefore the penalty which he imposes on sin is the only just measure of its ill desert. We're not adequate judges. Say, God, you can't do that. We're called to do is to submit to the revelation God has given us. And hopefully this will lead us not to a bitterness against God, but to a compassion for those who are lost. It's very difficult to think that this is really going to happen. Hopefully it will sober us up and we'll spend more time in prayer, in love and outreach to those who are outside of the gospel, trying to send them the message to our friends, to those around the world, like the tribes that the Levites have been reaching, who have had no gospel message brought to them, because the issues are eternal and they're very serious. This teaching is also given to motivate us. Notice verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Here, in this teaching of the eternal judgment of those who worship the beast. In other words, as we understand things from God's perspective, we see the eternal significance of the choices that we make then we're given the motivation to continue to persevere. The world around us tells us that Christianity is passe. It's boring. It's outdated. It's not modern and in. It won't satisfy you. They laugh at it. They uh, judge it to be intellectually inferior and uh, uh, hodgepodge of superstition. And yet we are given the motivation to persevere in spite of the persecution, in spite of the ridicule, because we know it. And we know that we will be adequately rewarded. Verse 13 is an elaboration on this last thought. We've had the three voices of the, the three angels. First one giving a, uh, a last chance of salvation. The second announcing the fall of Babylon. The third, the, the fall or the judgment of those who worship the beast. And now the voice that comes from heaven in verse 13 uh, confirms and elaborates what is, was said in verse 12. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Blessed are those who die, not blessed are those who have the... Uh, maturity of mind to know that it's not worth dying for. Rather, blessed are those who see through the illusions of the world and see that following Jesus Christ faithfully is worth it even if we have to pay the, the price of death. Now, this phrase, from now on, is, is problematic and I'm not sure what it means. So I'm not going to tell you. 
But we're told something of why the dead in Christ are blessed. They're blessed that they may rest from their labors. We're told that, yes, life here on earth for those who are following Christ is work. It's toil. It's labor. It's not as some perverted life is just all fun and games. Some people want to look upon God as a heavenly psychiatrist whose basic purpose is to heal our inner hurts and help us just to enjoy life. According to this view, Christianity is just another way to self-indulgence. But here we have a, a reminder of the fact that no, it's labor, it's work. It's hard to give up our desires, to give up our time, our money, our energies, to serve other people, to send the message of the gospel around the world, to reach out to the hurting person, to do as Jesus says. And when we give a banquet, don't merely invite our friends, but invite those who are hurting and lost and poor and can't repay us. It's hard to serve in those kinds of ways. And yet, this is, the, this is what makes up the life of those who follow our Lord. And we're told that they rest for their deeds follow them. Their deeds follow them and prepare the way. The rest that they experience then is a reward for the deeds that they have done. And here I think we're reminded of what is ultimately significant. The world tells you what is really significant would be that if you could become the division boss or the company president or write a book that could be published or make a million bucks or achieve some kind of status in, in the world. This would bring significance. And yet we're reminded here that the simple deeds of the saints, faithfully teaching a Sunday school class of five-year-olds, taking dinner to the sick, reaching out to the lonely and the hurting and the isolated, simple acts of kindness, visiting the wid widow and orphan in their affliction. These deeds done in the name of Christ are the things which are truly significant and will have an eternal reward. So we're reminded again, as we are all throughout this, of what is real. We live in a world of illusion that wants to distort life and lead us along paths that are not productive. And so God reminds us of what things are eternally significant. In verses 14 to 20, we have two harvests coming at the end of the age. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because their grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth, and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth 
and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. The first harvest, the, apparently the wheat harvest, is not interpreted for us, but I think that we are accurate if we interpret this as the, the one like a son of man being the Lord Jesus, wearing a golden crown, the crown of, of the victor. And he sends out his sickle to harvest the earth and bring in the saints. The end of the age has come, and now they're brought in to their rest, into his glory. But then there's a second harvest. Another angel comes and calls out in a loud voice. An angel coming from the temple sends a sharp sickle and brings in the grapes of wrath and throws them into the wine press where they're stomped until the blood runs out. The harvest of grapes is used elsewhere. It's used in the Old Testament of judgment. And it's an apt picture because God waits until the time is ripe before the judgment falls. He's patient. He gives people chance and chance and chance until finally they're so ripe for judgment. The judgment must fall. And then the judgment is pictured as the, as the man stamping in the grape press, squashing the juices out of the grapes. And the grapes, which are uh, grape juice, which is the color of blood, runs out of the, the uh, uh, wine press. And here we have the blood pictured up to the horse's bridles, some four or five feet tall, for a distance of 200 miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. I think that we have here a picture, a symbol, rather than a, a literal statement of what will be reality. To think of blood flowing this high for 200 miles uh, would be to conceive, uh, I think, the impossible. I could be wrong. Uh, but even if you have a billion people die, You'd have to have some tricky maneuvers to cut off their heads and pour out their blood so it's all at one time, so it runs like this. I think what we have instead is it's a picture of the massive nature of the judgment of God falling upon humanity at the very end. So we have two harvests. Simply reconfirming what we've had in verses uh, 6 through 13. The judgment day is coming. It is a reality. If you're not a Christian, then it's time to repent. It's time to turn around and to realize you cannot escape God's judgment. It's time to grab hold of the salvation that He offers you through faith in Jesus Christ. To realize you cannot save yourself. If you're a Christian, it's time for you and me to determine to live the rest of our lives to God's glory to build upon things which are going to have eternal significance, not to follow the way of the world and invest our lives in the trivial passing things. The monks in the medieval period used to put a skull on their desks to remind them of their mortality. Some people think that sounds awfully morbid. And yet I think that it's a positive thing. What we're taught in this passage is that we are on this earth only for a short time. Eternity is going to come. The judgment day is going to come. And we do need to live 
the rest of our lives in light of our mortality. Now the world tells us you only go around once so live it with all the gusto you can. You're mortal and so live it up while you got the chance. God says you're mortal but you're going to live again after you die. And the deeds that you do now will follow you. Those things which are done in the name of Jesus Christ for the sake of His glory by His power are going to be richly rewarded. God wants us to use our lives for our own benefit, for our own good, and so calls us to reality. Let's close this morning with a moment of meditation. Think about your own life and answer the question, what is my life like? Do I just tip my hat to Jesus Christ to salve my conscience, to bow to social pressure and look respectable to my friends? Or am I trying to be a well-rounded person? Do all things in moderation so I want to be moderate with my relationship with Christ? I want my religion to be a part of life, but certainly not dominate it. And so we restrict Christ to a certain small area that we give Him. Or we people who are living in light of eternity. And all that we do, our work, our play, our time, investment, our family life, everything is done with an ultimate view of bringing Him praise and glory and honor. That's what He wants from us. Not because He's a cruel God who's legalistic and uptight and wants to push a bunch of uncomfortable, unsatisfying religious duties on us, but because He wants us to see reality and live accordingly. Let's pray. God of glory, we thank You that You love us. We thank You that You reveal truth to us. Fill us with a recognition of Your power Give us a recognition of what things are really true. Protect us, Lord, from going the way of the world, prostituting ourselves to Babylon the Great, with all of our glamorous promises. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.